Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How is everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding. What's your name? I'm Jeff Gannon. Jeff Focus Gannon, Compounding. Focus Compounding. Hope everyone's having a great day, a great week. Hey, guess where we're going to be uh, in September? The week of September 16th. New York City? Do you know that? Yeah. We are going to be in New York City. We're going to get some uh, pizza. Wait, what's what's good food in New York City? Is it is it known for pizza or hot yeah. dogs? I don't even know. What, it's known for all those things. Okay, yeah. well we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna be doing that. If you want to meet up with us, your prospective investor, want a little bit learn a little bit more about our firm and what we are doing at Focus Compounding, definitely reach out info at focuscompounding.com. Uh, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to hit that subscribe button and uh, thumbs up. That helps spread the word. If you're listening on the podcast version and you love the work that we're doing here. We don't really advertise other than ourselves, right? right. Give us a rating review, and um, you know that helps spread the word, and that's all that we ask. Um, and you know, and watch I, your YouTube videos. And watch your YouTube videos. That's right. <laughs> we call it. What's our marketing plan? Good faith, right? We we put out good content. <laughs> we hope uh, some good stuff comes back to us in return. So. There's something every day now on, right. on YouTube. There's a podcast yeah. or a video every day. Yep, three three uh, videos a week. You get to see myself. It's a lot of fun. I get up there and I start rambling. The quality has gotten a lot better. I said, bear with me. I said it was going to take me, you know, a couple times mm-hmm. to do it. And I think it's finally to the point now where it is, uh, it's great. So if you are into that and you want to learn more about investing topics and all stuff related to that, go to YouTube, Focused Compounding, and you will see my face. So today we're going to be going over more questions that people asked of us. Okay. And it's from um, Twitter. This is from Twitter. Okay. If you want to um, be on the lookout for this, like I said, follow me at Twitter at Focus Compound. Every now and then we will put out a call for questions, and then you could ask a question. We'll feature on the show, right? Okay. We want to know what's on our listeners' minds. And Mr. Skilling, this is a parody account of Jeffrey Skilling. Oh, okay. He said, if you had to, A, buy an energy stock, or B, cut one of your fingers off, what kind of knife would you use? So mm-hmm. that was a joke. Okay. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> but let's talk about energy stocks, right? If okay. you had to buy one energy stock or you're interested in one or one that you think people should study, which one would you think that would be? Well, our biggest position is an energy stock. That's right. We own NACO, which is a um, coal and natural gas company, basically. Okay. It has natural gas royalties and uh, does coal for um, power plants. So everything it does is energy related. Mm-hmm. And why do you like NACO? Hmm. Well, this is a lot. Of, I think a lot of people get confused by this company because they think it's like just a coal company. So they automatically hear it because it is right. Right. A lot so of, a few things with coal. Yeah. Yes. So some coal companies are um, producing coal to be used in uh, the production of, of like uh, steel and things like uh, well steel, and um, uh, so you have metallurgical coal and then you also have thermal coal for for. Um, energy use, and that's what they're using, uh, what they're producing. And uh, NACO's coal is all um, sited at the customer. It's all lignite coal. Um, Which is? And, well, it's 
uh, it's a very low grade uh, form of coal, low surface value. Coal, right? Yeah, brown coal. Exactly, yeah. they're all surface mines, and so um, it it can't be transported very far. It economically, doesn't make sense to transport it very far, um, and they're all long long term contracts that it has. Uh, in addition to that, the company now has a lot of natural gas royalties coming in from its ownership of properties in Utica, mm-hmm. uh, Utica Shale, maybe I should say. So um, that's basically what South are your Australia. what are your thoughts on. Uh, the natural gas royalties because that's kind of like a, a that's new that's on th- everyone's mind with yeah, that sure. yeah. um, I don't know I was talking to someone about that today I've seen I've so I do research on it and stuff you know I've I've read the there's some land records that you can find there's maps of where wells are in Ohio um, there's maps of where NACO had coal mines um, I don't know uh, they have a lot of they had a lot of coal mines in the area and uh, we'll see um, there's, I've said before, you know, when people ask about it, there's a lot of natural gas there. I don't you know, know if it'll be, yeah, I don't know if it'll be economical, um, to take it out in terms of one, the funding costs for the producers. So NACO isn't producing this. Um, they're just collecting royalties mm-hmm. and then to the price of natural gas. So if you have a low price of natural gas and if you have high, um, interest rates and things, then I don't know that you'd be producing natural gas from there. Uh, if you have low interest rates and high natural gas prices, then, um, you would, but in terms of like how much natural gas there is in the region and stuff, it's huge. And I would expect it to be, one of the leading sources of natural gas for the U.S. for a very long time, but you there's a lot of in- infrastructure we put in there, and that's not going to happen unless you know it makes economic sense, and it does right now. But I think part of that is that it's easy to get um, to borrow a lot of money. Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason, uh, a pretty big part, because the producers are pretty aggressive that way in borrowing a lot and um, drilling a lot. Sure. And you know NACO doesn't have that risk, but the royalties all come from that, and. Uh, the wells don't last very long. So, you know, you'd have a big drop off uh, pretty quickly if uh, you stop drilling activity. So, do you think NACO is an overlooked stock? Yes. Even with us always talking about it? Mm-hmm. I think it is. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's surprising that be with our giant audience that it can continue to be an overlooked stock. But, um, yeah. What do you think I people think, get wrong about it? I don't think they know that it's a natural gas slash coal company together. Mm-hmm. And I think that they probably assume a coal company. I mean, NACO stands for North American Coal Company. Sure. Uh, even the the subsidiary that produces all of the um, uh, royalties and stuff is called North American Coal Royalty Company. Um, so I can see the association with coal. Sure. Now, th- so far this year, more of their earnings have come from natural gas than coal. And also... Uh, thing with coal is I think most people are thinking of metallurgical coal and even if they're not they're thinking of coal that is being shipped by rail and that's not the case you know uh, here so it has differences mm-hmm. from other coal companies do you certainly. think that it being um, a lot of the earnings coming from natural gas instead of coal do you think that's going to attract a different breed of investors I assumed it would but so far it hasn't seemed to make a huge difference mm-hmm. I mean there hasn't been huge share turnover there has been an increase in the in the price last quarter yeah um, but I haven't seen huge share turnover there's no new analysts on calls or anything like that yeah there's only one analyst on the call right yeah there's one analyst who asks all the questions um, so D- are his questions focused more so to the natural gas royalties he asked them how many acres they have last time yeah what did yeah. they say they said they're thinking about whether they're ever going to, re- you know, reveal that publicly or not, but they haven't done it yet. Would a company want to reveal that? Or well, I'm not. Keep it more so, so probably they will have someone at the company, a lawyer or someone, who will say, you know, 
we report our properties for the coal business in detail. So if you look it up, their coal mines, even their uh, coal mines have been shut down, give you the exact acreage of their surface interests, what they have mineral rights to all this stuff. And they've always done that. And it made sense for them to always do that. And it's a great level of disclosure. But someone's going to say, maybe since we started breaking out this business unit this uh, last quarter, and not the just report quarter, but the first quarter, um, since we started breaking out business units so that we're now a company with three different business units and the business unit that probably will contribute half or more of the earnings this year, we don't give those disclosures for maybe we either should stop disclosing yeah. in the other one or disclose, or disclose in this one. Um, I can see big reasons why the company wouldn't want to disclose it. I would be hesitant to disclose it if I were... Um, you, you know, would be hesitant? Very hesitant. Because... <laughs> I don't want to attract a bunch of people who are speculating on natural gas in, sure. in Utica. I mean, yeah, it's like the, the company's been around too, for, too you know, 80 years or whatever doing coal stuff. That's yeah. what they do. That's the whole... You know, they're not involved in a lot of the royalty stuff. This is a new thing. I doubt that, you know, you know, it's mo largely controlled by a family, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I just, they have a lot of long-term shareholders who who are tied to the, the coal part of it and everything. That's what the company is. I don't, I just don't know that you would want to attract that. I don't, I'd be surprised. I'd be shocked if the company like changed its name tomorrow to Utica Gas or something. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> um, but there are companies that will do that, but I just sure. don't see that with this company. Yeah, yeah I uh -huh. just really don't think so. Cool. Um, do you use reproduction value of companies' assets to value companies? And he's referring to Greenwald. Yeah. So, oh, so Bruce Greenwald, uh, that's, um, he wrote a couple books, but the one he's probably mentioning is Value Investing. Uh, Above and Graham Buffett and Beyond, yeah, or, yeah, something, yeah, like, something that, like that. Yeah. Um, so I haven't read that book in a while, I so I don't know the exact way I he. Twenty fourteen is when I read it. Okay, it a long time ago. So I don't remember the exact way he calculates um, the uh, the replacement cost, the reproduction value. Um, but I remember they do that calculation as a way of like alternatives or earning power sort of thing. Yeah, y you work backwards um, that way, so you sort of take earnings and stuff and, and build it back up into a, a book value type thing to mm -hmm. adjust it. Um, I, I do use the replacement cost, I have to say, for um, certain businesses, uh, which is not quite the same thing, I think. But um, so I mentioned uh, that I've, uh, by the time this podcast airs, I'll have written up a stock Monarch Cement. And the um, uh, cement plant that they have in Kansas, it, it trade the stock trades in the market, in the stock market, for less than uh, it would cost to build a cement plant. So, in fact, in less than it would cost to build an inferior cement mm -hmm. plant. And on top of that, um, because of reasons for the economics of cement, you would never build a cement plant uh, if you could buy it for a similar cost. You would always buy mm -hmm. um, because you the high fixed costs of both plants would mean you never want to site a new plant anywhere near an existing plant. So there's a strong preference to buy. So we know logically that if it costs more to build a cement plant than this one, um, and people would pay more to buy a cement plant than to build a cement sure, plant, yeah. you can guess that this company's probably received offers to buy it at much above their enterprise value. Um, so it's useful that way. Uh, but uh, it has less use than some other things. So like take the cement plant, cement plant in the middle of the United States should always be worth more than its replacement cost, right? However, a um, cement plant in China is very likely We'll see. But very likely to eventually be sold and stuff for less than it cost to build it originally, which means less than its book value, less than its cost to replace it, certainly, things like that. Um, I was just reading uh, Titan, which is a book about John D. Rockefeller. And when he was creating Standard Oil, um, he bought up 
almost all the refineries, uh, well, basically eventually all the refineries in uh, an area which was where most oil refining was going on at the time and uh, pay below replacement costs for all of them, everything you bought up. The reason was that like nine out of 10 of them were losing money. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's what happens when you have huge overcapacity in industry. And so when you have huge overcapacity in industry, things get bought out for less than replacement sure, costs all the time. Yeah. They burn cash. So it doesn't really matter what book value is what you originally put into it. Replacement cost is what you would pay to build a new one now. If no one would ever be dumb enough to build another refinery or build another cement plant or whatever, then it doesn't necessarily matter what the replacement cost is, right? For um, what Greenwald's talking about matters a lot for companies that have high uh, returns on capital and things like that. But... A lot of times I think you can't replace those assets. So um, like Buffett owns a railroad. The replacement cost is you can't build another railroad. There's no way to build another railroad in the United States. It was through granting all sorts of land to them by governments. It would never happen again. It's just impossible. Yeah. Um, but even things like we talked in a podcast about village supermarket. Mm -hmm. If someone asked me what's the um, in the like the town I grew up in, if you were to put a, they would say, well, how much would it cost to put a seventy thousand square foot? Um, supermarket in the town I grew up in? Well, the answer is the town will say no to you. You can't have a 70,000 square foot supermarket because you wouldn't be able, they wouldn't approve you for the parking and all those things. They don't want it. So the ones that exist already uh, trade at a premium in terms of just private values. And so people would always pay more for them than it would actually cost to build something there because there's it's impossible to figure out what the cost is. Mm -hmm. I think it's useful to find things where it would be difficult to replace the asset. Um, but you know, I would also be cautious because some things that trade below what they would cost to replace uh, tend to be burning a lot of cash and will eventually be sold for less than their replacement cost. So it's only useful if they have value, um, if they have cash flows coming in that way. From what I remember of the book, his whole method is pretty theoretical, mm -hmm. I would say, and uh, more complicated than I think is necessary. It's sort of a way of taking what you could just analyze as an income statement sort of thing and sure. moving it over to put to find a way to put that on the book value basically mm -hmm. on the balance sheet so it's almost like trying to figure out a way to put um to get a number on terms of goodwill or something you know cool so um a good question just came through okay right it says what are your thoughts on the buffett partnership days fee structure uh -huh. and then he says is uh i'm not gonna say the name and another uh, hedge fund manager, we, he's public, Pabrai, uh, is he smart for using it? Would you consider using it? Uh, yeah. Well, yes and no. Uh, is he smart for using it? Yeah. Uh, well, yes, definitely smart for using it. So the Buffett one is, there's a um, hurdle that you have to clear, which I think in Buffett's time was 6%, yeah. and then you use 25% of the profits. Yep. Um, I think that... It, what were CDs at when he did that? They were probably close to that. Like yeah, what, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the yield curve, the whole shape of it was very different too. Sure. But yeah, he did that because you could certainly, um, uh, you could put money in the, uh, probably bank loans were 6%. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So if you wanted to, the best borrower could borrow from a bank at probably 6% at that time. I would guess deposits were paying over 3% when he did that. Um, you know, uh, today, long-term government bonds don't even pay 3%. Whereas, you know, overnight money used to pay 3% when he did it. But um, uh, I think it's, <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's it's very smart in a couple ways. One, people like there to be a hurdle to sure. clear. Although that's not much of a hurdle. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's fine. It reduces your fees to have yeah. a hurdle. But if you're if he's not going to clear 6%, you probably don't want to be invested with him. Mm -hmm. And because the Dow did return about 6% sure. while he was invested um, in his partnership years. And then um, in terms of the, percentage of the profits 
I think that's what a lot of people want. Sure. Is the percentage yeah. of the profits. Yeah. A lot of people were kind of debating this on Twitter recently. Yeah. I'm curious to hear, would you rather your investment manager, someone's managing your money, would they? Would you rather them have that fee structure where they have to kind of worry about paying their bills because they have zero revenue coming in, theoretically, right? Yeah. Or would you rather them have like more of a management fee and a kicker on the back end for the incentive fee to the point yeah. where... Think about if you're just starting off a business, you know, bills, mm-hmm. you want some revenue in, would that add a little bit more pressure to the manager if they don't have that management fee coming in? Because I heard both sides of the story by very smart people, even yeah. individuals who you would think would say, I would rather them have 0% management fee and then a, a per- percent of the profits with a, hur- a hurdle, mm-hmm. a hurdle rate, you know, blah, blah, blah. They should be rich already. Um, there's a lot of very smart people who I respect who said, well, actually, I'd rather them have some sort of revenue coming in to the fact where they don't have to worry about it so they could... Um, you know, kind of like free up their mind, I guess, to actually invest, you know? So I heard both ends of the, of the story. Yeah. I mean, I wrote a long uh, thing to clients, which talked about that. Yeah. About yeah. 1 in 15, because they could choose, a very small number of them, could choose between 1 in 15 or 2.5%. Yeah. And I didn't want, I don't like to get people's hopes up about whatever, but I said, you're going to do better with 2.5%. It's going to be cheaper for you to do sure. that. Yeah. Uh, which means I, you know, mathematically that means I'm saying you're going to make the, the accounts going to make more than 10%. So pick the 2.5. Um, now I think some people thought I meant pick the 25 cause it m- gives more guaranteed money to me. Yeah. Um, but what I said in that letter is basically it's all about these incentives. And I can tell you that I was, that I couldn't have more incentives than I do already. There's no point in over-incenting people. You're saying that what you I was think saying. we're going to make more than 10%. So just in case, that's, <laughs> not, that's, that's not a guaranteed rate. just want to put that Well, actually, what I said <laughs> is if you feel confident we'll yes. make less than 10%, then yes. you should fire us. Yes. That's what I really said. Sure. But, yeah. um, uh, but uh, what I meant is, so with the incentive things, what I meant, and I actually use this example, is when you give a... Um, you talked about the Buffett formula or the Buffett incentive structure. Yeah, yeah. But but what I mean is if you give a... C- it doesn't make sense that if you give a CEO of a $100 million company, um, let's say, uh, 5% of the stock uh, in stock options, that he... It, well, you should give him 10 because he would have better incentives now, you know? Um, it's true that if he has already saved $50 million, then no matter what you're giving him with the company, it's going to be a small amount for him. Sure, yeah. But what I meant was... The info, here's the thing. You're in terms of there being any conflict of interest between you as an investor and the um, person who's investing your money. The conflict is always going to be they grow their assets more than they should for you. Sure, it's you the both manager, the manager. Assets, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, in both cases, for you and you, you're always on the same side in terms of you want higher returns. Of course, both yeah. of you do. Yeah. So in sending you to have really high returns, I feel is kind of silly. I mean, because if you don't have good enough returns you'll just get fired yeah and that's usually how you attract more assets too exactly yeah you know in in general people like to look at the track record yeah now i think that's a little over that's a little exaggerating in terms of how important the track record is especially over very short periods of time but it is how people look generally Mm -hmm. i would say um so yeah so whether they're taking a percentage of profits or a percentage of assets uh, they're always going to want to compound more for a lot of reasons. But the downside for you potentially in either setup is always going to be that they may want to um, grow the assets overall more, which, to, in, in which case you, uh, the investor, don't benefit as much because they could grow too large sure. uh, for which their strategy. Returns, yeah. yeah, and that's a big deal with what the strategy is, and that's what I would be hesitant about that. We've talked about that before and stuff about how far we could scale up and things like that, and that's always an issue. And usually what you see with value investors who have problems 
growing bigger, Buffett is a rare exception to it, is that their results, um, well, even Buffett's results weren't as good when he was bigger, but their results sometimes aren't good at all sure. when they're managing uh, $2 billion as opposed to when they're managing $200 million. Yeah. What do you think about the Buffett structure? I mean, I would, I would agree with you. I think, um, you know, f- for example, I, I was reading a investor letter recently who I think his clients were up 30-something percent, and his clients have paid like 7 to 8% in fees. So I, I just think mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting when you actually like extrapolate out the math, yeah. right? Buffett was 5.7%. Yeah, sure. That's what he paid. 5.7% a year is what it would have been if it was yeah, a Yeah, and I think, I think the conversation around fees is really because a lot of um, managers, in my opinion, are sort of closet indexers. Right. Yes. So that's where yeah. that's where the fee really does come into effect because you could just go buy like the S P five hundred and call it a day. Yeah. But I, I think if if there's some sort of outperformance or if there's some sort of specialization there, I think paying a fee for what it's worth is is okay. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt if you're doing something that's similar to an index fund, if you're investing in an index fund or if you're investing in a mutual fund that you expect to be similar to an index fund, yeah. you need to go for the lowest possible fee. Mm-hmm. Because it, the math is pretty simple here. You have to expect the outperformance to be greater than the fee. Sure. Yeah. So if you think that something's going to be within 2% of the S&P 500 all the time just because of how it's structured that it owns a lot of stocks, it is you know diversified in all the ways that you might want. You might want something that's like the S&P 500, but if you have that, then obviously you can't pay a fee of 2% or more. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, whereas, um, you know, I'll compare it all to Vanguard. I mean, that's what we use as the comparison is a Vanguard fund, yeah. which is an mm-hmm. index fund, um, which is what we use in reporting the results and everything. And you can look at that and look how low the fee structure is there, incredibly low. And it, the question is whether it beats that after fees. Mm-hmm. That's always, I mean, that's our returns are shown net of fees against Vanguard net of fees, which their fees are incredibly low. Yeah. But we use both of them net of fees, and that's an easy way to compare them. Um, you know, it, it, I think that too much concern is given to incenting managers to get good returns on. Um, I think it sounds good. Here's the thing that I have the issue with it sounds really good to investors incentives sound like a great idea. And I think yeah. incentives are powerful. But the problem is that if if you have a fund manager or a investment manager of any kind who has really good returns over time, okay, and enough people find out about those returns, it doesn't matter much what their fee structure is. You can pick all sorts of different fee structures. They're going to get incredibly wealthy. Yeah, sure. If they have subpar results for that whole time, uh, they're not going to get wealthy at all. And that's just what's going to happen. So yeah. they have huge incentives to want to outperform the market. Yeah, uh, yeah. You don't need to give any more incentives. No, and not only that, yeah. in things of bragging rights and things of whatever, the yeah. results are reported. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. all sorts of things are that they want to beat the index. I would be more concerned with the capacity and that the manager sticks to that capacity. Absolutely. That's yeah. a huge risk. Yeah. And you do see um, of the subpar strategy. managers who make a lot of money. They're, I mean, I should say subpar managers, but their performance is subpar yes. who make a lot of money. And the way they did it, is almost in every case they had great performance. They had a couple then years they brought of in a lot of assets, yeah. and, and then, then they made a lot of money because they yeah. had a lot of assets. It's true that there are entire institutions that don't have great returns but have uh, make a lot of money, but that's they're doing something different. Um, that's only possible if you bring in a lot of money. In all these cases, ha- compounding at a good rate is something that the manager will want to do no matter what. Sure. I think. Yeah. Um, I guess some people could argue, well, they might be too conservative in some ways or not want to, you know, whatever. Whereas on the flip side, if it was that it's just a share of profits, people could argue, well, they'll be too aggressive that sure. way. You know, yeah. if someone doesn't have any money, any savings and stuff, and then they're getting a percentage of profits, they could be that they want to make the money but now. But excluding that, yeah, any manager on any fee structure is going to want to perform the best that they possibly can. They'll always want to perform the best they possibly can. I guess you could say that the incentive structure has something to do with the risks that they see. Yeah, and stuff. yeah, yeah. But 
they're also managing that even in terms of career risk and stuff with that people could leave their fund or whatever or that they could be fired by whoever their employer is because in many people cases the person running the fund is not uh and isn't has people that they report to sure um so yeah i mean i i I think mostly comes down to what the investor wants yeah which in some cases which is what i talked about in the letter what the investor wants what will make them feel best i can say if you do the math will not always result in you coming away with the most money Mm -hmm. but they still may like it and so i do notice that a lot of people like a um, profit share um so an incentive uh, that is from a percent of the profits rather than just a flat management fee because they think it has good incentives that way i think primarily the reason that they may want it is because there's peace of mind that they didn't pay anything for a down year sure yeah yeah mm-hmm. but you're gonna have down years and up years with any manager so yeah <laughs> you can pay them in the down years and then you pay you yeah. save in the up years if you use the other structure so i don't know i would say there's one thing that's true which is try to be as rational as possible about it and actually do the math about at what returns you would make would they, more would they money even out it would even yeah. out yeah for us um you know i said to people if you have 2.5 percent um, then you're gonna with the one in fifteen, two point five percent. That's at ten percent. Mm-hmm. So the break even for those two is at is at ten percent. So if you have really strong beliefs that you're gonna do better than ten percent, the two with this, percent yeah. yeah. Or if you have really strong beliefs they'll do worse than ten percent. You know, obviously if you're investing in some bond thing, you better take the uh, one in fifteen, yeah. not the two point five, yeah. because you're gonna have less than ten percent. But yeah, I mean it just depends on that. So I mean do the math and try to be as rational as possible about it. Yeah. Um, from the manager's perspective, you know the way that makes investors the happiest and gives them the highest performance uh, fees long-term seems to my mind to be the performance fee. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's no way that someone, but Buffett or something could ever make that much in management fees. People would say no to a five or 6% management fee, but they don't have a problem with uh, 25% over 6%, which Mm -hmm. is what he did. So yeah, if you're going to have really good performance then obviously a, uh, pure profit thing is what would make you the most money and seems to be fine with a lot of investors. Yeah. Right. Sure. I mean, you talk to a lot of investors. They yeah. Find, yeah. They like that. Yeah. So <laughs> that's the one that I think would make sense. <laughs> but if people want to learn about our fee structure, you know what they should do? Go to focus No, they should, they should reach out to us because oh. we're going to be, and if you're in New York, cause we're going to be in New York, uh, the week of September 16th. Yes. And if you're interested in it and you want to meet, sit down with Mr. Jeff and myself and your prospective investor, reach out to info at focus I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us here today. If you're watching us on YouTube, give us a thumbs up and hit that subscribe button. Three videos a week. Are you going to do a cameo at all and come in? Uh, I don't know about that. We'll see. Yeah, maybe. So be sure to <laughs> check us studio. out there. <laughs> <laughs> Follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound. We'll see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.